starting at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and, and lay, uh, lay in waste in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Hivlah um, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and voted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on it, went down to Gilgah. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you, be you to the Lord. I perform the commandment of, of the Lord. And Samuel said to him, What is this bleeding of sheep in my ear, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, um, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to fat sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgah. And Samuel said, Has the Lord the great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And listen then, the, um, and listen then, the fat of rams, for rebellion is as a sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I have feared the people and obeyed their voice. 
Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgah. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in, in Gibah of, of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Please be seated. Would you pray with me as we uh, go uh, to the Lord's word? Father, our plea before you this morning is very simple. We ask that you would meet with your people, that you would be present among us, and that you would impress your great love for us upon our hearts. Father, we ask that you would, um, that you would, that you would cut and heal, that you would dismantle and transform. Father, would you... Uh, would you speak to us this morning through, uh, through the words that uh, are about to come out of my mouth? Father, would they not be laced with human wisdom, but empowered by your spirit to bring glory to your name? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Are you familiar with the term bridezilla? It comes from two words. The, the English word bride, which means woman to, to be wed, and Godzilla, which is a fire-breathing monster. And it's used to describe women who become obsessed with having every desire and whim concerning their wedding carried out to a T. And if it's not, disastrous consequences. Uh, take Elena Glade, for example. Uh, back in 2007, the New York Times ran an article about uh, how she was suing her florist because the hue of the hydrangeas in her centerpieces were just not quite right. And... In her words, because of this egregious, distressing, and embarrassing offense, she was demanding $400,000. That's crazy, right? And yet, God has kind of given off some bridezilla-type vibes in our text, isn't he? He has his heart set on the destruction of the Amalekites. And whenever Saul doesn't carry it out to the letter, he comes to Samuel crying. And Samuel has the unfortunate task of telling King Saul that uh, he's no longer going to be king. Because he didn't do exactly what the Lord says. 
The point of this sobering passage is to teach us that God expects total obedience, and anything less is disobedience. And if you're not a Christian, or, or maybe you've always believed that Christianity was all about love, grace, and forgiveness, this probably doesn't sit well with you. You might be thinking, well, hang on a second. I have rights. I have a right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Who is God to come in and tell me what I can and can't do? Oh, who is he to demand my obedience and restrict my freedom? And if that's you, I just want to assure you that you're in good company this morning. Because everyone, even those of us who accepted Jesus as our Savior and King, push back against total obedience. We just do so in more subtle ways. Look how King Saul responds whenever the prophet Samuel shows up to confront him. Samuel comes to inform Saul that his selective obedience is really just disobedience. And, and notice how Saul pushes back. Starting in verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, well, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, well, well they, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. See, one of the ways that we push back against total obedience is kind of to do a magic trick. We make a big show of our obedience over here in the hopes that no one will notice the little cracks in our obedience. That's what Saul does. Look at my obedience. Don't notice the sheep over here. And that's kind of like what a little child does whenever you walk into the room and the first thing they do is shout loudly, I wasn't trying to cut my sister's hair, but you see scissors sticking out from behind his back. And so you know that's not true. The evidence contradicts the claim. That's what happens here with Saul. He claims to have obeyed the Lord, to carry out the word he had heard, and yet Samuel looks at the evidence and says, well, hang on, if you heard the word of the Lord, why do I hear sheep and oxen? And so Saul has to pivot. He has to push back in a slightly different way. He deflects. He shifts responsibility for the disobedience onto someone else. Oh, it's not my fault, Samuel. They brought the sheep and oxen. The people wanted to do this, and I just I couldn't stop them. If you're upset, it should be with them. You know, it's, uh, I would love to be at church every Sunday morning, but sometimes it's just so difficult to get my kids out of bed. Otherwise, I'd be here. Or, you know, I, I really would love to have a quiet time every single day, but I just have to leave so early to make it to work. I just, I can't do it every day. We shift responsibility. But like a boomerang... <laughs> that always comes back to hit us square in the face. If a little child throws a rock through the window and their parents ask them, hey, why'd you do that? And they said, well, my friends thought it was a good idea. What's the classic response? Well, if your friends thought it was a good idea to jump off a cliff, would you do it? No. Eventually, you have to, to assume responsibility. And so Paul, or Saul pushes back one last time. Uh, he tries to minimize his disobedience. Notice again uh, verse 15. 
the people, they brought the livestock from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Yeah, maybe I didn't completely obey, but hey, we're going to have a great worship service afterwards, and look at all these animals we can now sacrifice to the Lord. Surely he can't be upset with that. We minimize our disobedience. We try to find the good that may come out of it. Now, all these attempts to push back against uh, total obedience is really just a testament to the fact that we, we know what's wrong. Um, that, that to not totally obey the Lord is disobedience. And here's the reason we do this. Here's the reason that we push back against total obedience. Because we don't believe that God deserves what he demands. We don't. Uh, deep down, we think that God is kind of like a bridezilla, that, that he is making unrealistic demands on people, and so we just kind of ignore him, or we try to placate him as best we can. And so we really have to start there. Is God worthy of what he demands? Does he deserve our disobedience? Now, perhaps you noticed at the beginning of our text, there's a rather uncomfortable situation. God orders the complete annihilation of the Amalekites. And you might read that and think to yourself, there's the proof. God doesn't deserve our obedience because he's just going to wipe people out on a whim. But the text is actually presenting this as a case for obeying God because it testifies to his justice. So we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that the Amalekites are innocents here. They weren't just some people off keeping to themselves, and the Israelites just came in one day and massacred them. Uh, the Amalekites were a barbaric people group who were hell-bent on destroying Israel and the surrounding nations. That's their history, and you, it can be traced all the way back to Exodus 17. So this is right after the Israelites have gone through the Red Sea. They're making their way to Mount Sinai, and we're told that the Amalekites come in, and they attack the Israelites unprovoked. Worse, they come up and attack the Israelites from behind, which is where all of the women and children would have been. And so the Israelites turn, and they begin to battle against the Amalekites. And this was that, uh, that famous story where uh, if Moses keeps his hands above his head, they win. And should they fall, they begin to lose. And so they win. They, they push back the Amalekites. But the Amalekites keep coming back. They keep making partnerships with different nations in an attempt to blot out the Israelites. And this carries throughout the Exodus into the period of the Judges. And so God promises Israel as they are preparing to enter the Promised Land in Deuteronomy 25, that he will deal justly with the Amalekites. And Saul is to be the bringer of that justice. Now, you might not like the methods that God uses to bring about his justice, but, but we do need to note that, that the way that, that God goes about this war is very different than the way war is normally done. Very few wars are actually about justice. Most wars are said to be about it, right? They're for justice and peace and, uh, and, and um, freedom. And yet there's always ulterior motives. There are always side benefits. Perhaps it's to gain resources, to eliminate a rival, to shore up one's power. Very few wars are about setting things right alone. And yet this one is. That's, by the way, why God instructs them to completely destroy everything. Everything. 
This is not about gaining wealth or power for the Israelites. This is simply about setting things right. And so God is deserving of our obedience because he is a just God. But the text also makes a case in a more intimate fashion that God is deserving of our obedience because of his kindness to us. Uh, look, Look at Samuel's first rebuke to King Saul, starting in verse 17. Samuel uh, says to him, uh, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? What does Samuel say to Saul? Saul, you were small and insignificant. Don't kid yourself into thinking that you became king for any other reason than God made it so. I know, that doesn't sound very kind. Bear with me. Samuel is trying to to explain to Saul that there is no such thing as a self-made man. Now, hang on a second, Caleb. I've worked really hard to get where I am today. I know, and I have too. You know, we go to school, we put in the hours, we hone our our skills, we we, we work hard to succeed. And when we do, this thought starts to creep into our heads, doesn't it? Look at what I've done. Look at what I was able to accomplish. But can I paraphrase God's question to Moses in Exodus chapter 4? Who gave you a mouth to preach these sermons? Who gave your hands the skills to perform these surgeries? Who gave your mind the ability to comprehend these complex algorithms and laws? Is it not I, the Lord? And I I say this not to discourage you or or not to to make light of our our efforts and work, nor to, to bring us down a notch. But I want us to grasp how kind and gracious and loving and generous God has been to each one of us. That every good thing that we experience comes down from him. I think King David says it best in Psalms 8. What, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? The text is very clear. God is certainly worthy of something. But is it obedience? I, maybe he just deserves a, a thank you prayer at dinner every day. Or maybe he's deserving of us to show up every Sunday morning and sing him a couple of songs. What is so significant about obedience? And you can kind of hear Saul uh, wrestling with this in his continued defense in verses 20 and 21. He's still pleading not guilty when he says to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. Now I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Notice what Saul does here. I have obeyed the Lord, mostly. But we're going to have some sacrifices. Look at all these animals. We're going to have one of the best worship services we've ever had. Notice what he does. In Saul's mind, sacrifices are a great stand-in for obedience. That because I'm going to sacrifice, we're good. 
To which Samuel famously replies in verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, there is a temptation here to think that Samuel is pitting sacrifices against obedience, and that's not what's happening here. The sacrifices were, were the pinnacle of, of, of public worship. It was an integral part of obeying God. It was a part of obeying God. What Saul has done is he has made it the whole thing. That if I do this, then I'm good. This is something that the nation of Israel struggled with, this reductionist logic. Uh, for example, in, in Jeremiah, uh, one of God's complaints against the Israelites is that they go into the temple, they offer their sacrifices, and they go and live however they want, declaring, the Lord is with me. And they do so because of their burnt offerings. They've deceived themselves into thinking that because I have obeyed in this one sense, then I have obeyed. Holy. And you can imagine how easy it is to fall into that type of logic. To think, well, I've, I've had my quiet time today. I have obeyed the Lord. I pray with my family every evening. I have obeyed the Lord. I show up every Sunday and I serve in the back once a month. I am obeying the Lord. That's true. All of these things are good things. All of these things are a part of obeying the Lord. But they are not the whole of it. God is not interested in parts. He is interested in total obedience. But why is that? Why can't he just be satisfied with mostly obedient? Why is he hung up on this total thing? And Samuel explains that to us in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now, perhaps like me, you've heard this verse before and you've thought to yourself, well, this is hyperbole. Um, Samuel is just trying to tell Saul that God really doesn't like disobedience. But that's not what he says, is it? He says that disobedience is equal to the chief sins of divination and idolatry. And here's why. Because all three of them depose God from his throne. Divination, the, uh, the, the seeking of, of future advice from spiritual beings, uh, idolatry, the worship of God's substitutes and disobedience, all of them say to God, you are optional. There are other things that are more essential to my significance, my security, and my success than you. And this is why God is so uh, intent on obedience, because it signifies something else. There is something going on beneath the surface, and we have to, to take that deep dive to push down below our actions and see what is driving our obedience. This is what King Saul is forced to face in verses 24 and 25. He says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Did you catch what was determining his obedience or lack thereof? It was the fear of the people. 
Now, we need to define fear uh, here. Uh, Saul is not saying that, that he was terrified that the people would kill him if he didn't bring some lambs home. See, fear in this sense means to delight in something, to, to find value and worth in it. Which, by the way, is why Scripture tells us that we need to fear the Lord, that, that we should find delight in who he is, that, that we should value, that see what he has done for us as the greatest thing of value and worth. Put simply, uh, what our heart most loves is the thing we are most obedient to. And in Saul's case, the thing that his heart most loves is the opinion of the people. He needs to have their approval because in the back of his mind, he knows the truth. He is small. He is insignificant. But rather than look to the God who made him king, who has given him success in this battle, he turns to the people. And he looks to them for his significance, security, and success. And because this is what he most loves, this is what he is most committed to obeying. Everything King Saul does in this text is out of service to his greatest affection. Why does he spare King Agag? It's so that he can be a king of kings and so that the people can praise him for it. Why does he spare the, great, or the choicest livestock? Well, once again, so that he can be praised at, at, at what a great king that he had this victory and then we're going to worship the Lord now. Why does he not go straight to Gilgal, the spiritual hub of his day, to praise the Lord for the victory? Because he's too busy setting up a monument to himself so that the people remember how much they like him uh, and how great he is. I mean, even his confession in verse 30 is not about repenting of his disobedience, but trying to look good for the people. Saul doesn't totally obey because he doesn't totally love God. And this is why we don't totally obey either. Because we have determined that there is something more wonderful and essential to us than God. Perhaps like King Saul for you, that's popularity. Maybe it's having a good reputation, being seen as the ideal spouse, parent, or child. Uh, perhaps it's uh, financial security and success. Perhaps it's career advancement, academic excellence, political ideologies, physical attractiveness. We can keep going. But here's how you tell what you most love. Look at the times that you disobeyed the Lord. Why did you do it? It's because in that moment, you decided that something else was more essential to you than God. No, I'm not saying that we don't love God and that we aren't obedient to him at times. I'm saying that there is a hierarchy of loves in our heart. This is why we obey God sometimes, but not all the times. Sometimes God is our greatest love in the bracket. But should our number one seed be brought up against God, he loses every time. See, it is our affections that drive our obedience. Which means for us to be totally obedient to God as our text commands us to be. We have to have hearts that are totally in love with God. 
which means that we can't just try harder. The application of this text is not to go home and try and be more obedient. That would be like trying to get all of the air out of a glass. You can try to dump it out. You can try to suck it out. But the moment that air can return to that glass, it will. Likewise, we can try to restrict and conform our actions, but the moment our hearts can run back to their deficient affections, they will. But there is a rather simple solution to getting the air out of the glass. You pour water in it. You fill the glass with water. And the water expels all the air and keeps it from returning. See, the solution is to fill our hearts with a greater affection that will expel the current and deficient affections that are residing in our hearts. And the only thing that has that type of expulsive power is Jesus. Jesus, the only person who was ever totally obedient, who was never out of step uh, with God's will, because his greatest delight and affection at all times was the Father. He's the only one who is truly significant, truly worthy of God's favor and kindness. And yet, what does he do? Well, Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 tell us, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God saw us in our sinful, small, insignificant state, and he sends Jesus to, to die for our disobedience as a demonstration of love. See, Jesus suffered the greatest amount of shame and rejection on the cross so that you and I could experience the Father's approval. Jesus endured unimaginable pain and anguish so that we might be safe and secure. Jesus was brought low and made poor so that we might be exalted and made rich. Don't you see? Every affection demands obedience, but only Jesus is worthy of it. Every other affection demands sacrifices from you. Jesus is the only one who sacrificed for you. Brothers and sisters, this is how we wholeheartedly obey. To let this love of God penetrate our hearts, to become so enthralled with it that we cannot help but obey. So would you with me turn your eyes on Jesus? Would you look whole in his wonderful gaze? And then and only then will the things of this earth, these deficient affections, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory, love, and grace. Pray with me. Father, with the Apostle John, we are amazed at the love that you have lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Father, we confess, I confess that 
how so easy to replace you, to follow deficient affections instead of you. Would you forgive us of that, Father? Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, impress your love upon our hearts so deeply that have a great joy and affection for you. We obey. Now, Father, would you just be pleased as we sing your praises? Would you remind us once again of your love? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we close? <clears throat>